Hi everyone, it's Joachim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Mar Sadra, the co-founder and CEO of Incremental, which is a company that evolves digital marketing from the measurement of traffic to measuring value. Basically what they're doing is changing the landscape of user acquisition attribution. In this episode, we talk about the ways that Mars company changes the daily life of online marketers, including all the UA professionals in gaming. And then we cover Mars background, how he approaches entrepreneurship and what lessons he's picked up along the way. All right, we're live. Hey, Mar, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Joachim, how are you? Good, just had lunch. It's not not one of the most busiest days, but probably will turn out to be a, a busy in the end. Mm-hmm. For me, it's Good. the other way around. It's There is no no busy day anymore. See, entrepreneurial life, uh, I, I, know, I know you know it very well. Yeah, it's fun. It's the best time. Man, let's get going. There's a few questions here. First, I wanted to get to to you to share your origin story with the audience here and how you got your sort of like dips into into the tech industry and and then to found incremental can you share that in a few minutes yeah wow origin story yeah so uh, yeah hi i'm so i'm or i'm i'm originally from israel which i guess is already kind of like origin story israel has always had a lot of tech a lot of innovation coming from that tiny country for various reasons. And yeah, I guess I was drawn into that too. Pretty much when I finished my army service, I had an opportunity to grab a job with a startup, which I honestly didn't really get what they were doing, but it was one of the biggest ad networks early, early, early 2000s. And I think already there, I got like hooked on this whole like ed tech, marketing tech, impressions, big numbers, advertisers globally, gaming. Yeah, it was just cool. I, I just thought it was really cool. I, I don't know, enjoyed learning Excel and back then Excel was harder than it is today. I enjoyed dealing with people from around the world, handling like massive amounts of numbers. Just, you know, sometimes the thought behind like what is behind these numbers was like mind boggling for me. And yeah, I completely got hooked into it. I was super young. So I was like 21 when I started my career. And I guess this was like a contributing factor. You know, when you're very young and you're into something, then it really becomes like a passion. And it was fairly simple for me to like carry on this career. So I've been basically in like ed tech and marketing technology for like 20 plus years now grew from the bottom up completely. And yeah, I do credit a lot of my, my growth in my career to just like really, really being passionate about this. Like actually, like I could literally talk about what I do 24 seven and will not get bored, at least not myself. Others might, but uh, that's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. You've now gone to found incremental. Can you talk a bit about like your sort of like path to founding your company and then then possibly go into an introduction on incremental yeah sure so it's it's in a way related so incremental is the first company i founded from scratch and 
throughout my career it always bugged me that I didn't start something. And I think Incremental definitely is the right company for me to have started. Like throughout my career, again, I was always like related somehow to performance marketing. So obviously it always included tracking, attribution, measurements, and it always bug, bugged me, like something wasn't adding up. And it wasn't until my previous role, I was chief revenue and then CEO of a company called Applift. Applift was a CPI network, uh, originally gaming only, later non-gaming as well. And Applift, I, it really bothered me, like the way tracking and attribution was working, because essentially what it was doing, it was giving 100% credit to just whoever touched the user last. Okay. So it doesn't matter whatever the user did. It doesn't matter who the user's friends were. It doesn't matter if the user was like into something, as long as someone presented the user an impression or a click just before they converted, okay, install an app, purchase something that last touch point would just get a hundred percent of the credit, which just, I don't know, it bugged me. It just, it didn't make sense. And of course there was like a whole era of tons of what we call fraud, but generally it was just attribution fraud that even more bothered me because guys, this is not fraud. This is basically the system just doing what it's supposed to be doing, but it's wrong. It's like the system is wrong. And I think at some point I came up with this like analogy that like attribution is kind of like trying to manage a football team where you only pay the person scoring the goal. Now your CFO might start telling you, Hey, stop paying the 10 other players. You know what? Fire the 10 other players. You just need the person scoring the goal. Now, I, I, I think everyone would agree that a team with just one person will likely lose every other consecutive game. Okay. And yeah, I would say that that kind of like is the root of like what bugged me. Now, when I was trying to figure out solutions, of course, I came with what I knew. Okay. User level tracking. Let's try to track users better. Let's try to understand users better. And that like wasn't the answer for me because I knew that there is a no chance we're going to get this data. Okay. This, it was clear for me that like user level private data is going to be like more scarce. It's not going to be available for anyone to do whatever they want with. And the other thing that bothered me is what about everything that happens beyond the digital realm? What about, you know, like, uh, I don't know, influencer marketing is very popular and TV and I knew that CTV is going to eventually grow. Interesting that by the way, that this month Netflix is adding ads. So that's, I think, finally going to be the explosion of CTV as well. But there's all these other like factors that influence why a user will do what they do that is not as simplified as this last click or the user digital journey. Yeah, so really, really started thinking of like, what is the right form of measurement? Came up with the like understanding that incrementality would be it. Now was the question, how do we do it? without using like user level data, which is the most common way people use in order to measure incrementality. And yeah, thanks to my co-founder who was the smarter one. He came up again with the causal data science part, the algorithms part, the weighting, the scoring, the like modeling part. And yeah, so that's kind of like a little bit of the path, I would say. It's something that really just bothered me to my soul that um, had me go and do something about it. Yeah, that's a, it's really, it, it feels like the next level of attribution, but like to, to think about the advertiser, what does this solve for the advertiser who is anyways needing to pay for the install? What are the benefits then of actually having more data online? 
what is the impact of your whole advertising? Yeah, so I would say like when, when, when me and my co-founder really like started the company, then we knew that of course, okay, incrementality measurement is a is a need, but uh, or you know what, it's a want, but maybe it wasn't yet a need. It was this is how you can actually prove that the advertising you're doing is actually creating incremental value. Oh, and by the way, with this, you can also measure things that you couldn't measure using like traditional attribution. You could measure influencers, television, and so on. I remember like when I started the company, you know, we used to speak with investors and we used to mention maybe in the future, there's going to be some changes in the OSs where the access to user level data out there is not going to be that like available. That will essentially disrupt how marketers do attribution today. That's going to be good for us. As you can imagine, that change basically happened very shortly after we started the company. Yeah. Now, yeah, that, that was incredible for us because in a way, it's like what, what Apple did with the announcement of ATT and eventually the release of ATT was change the rules of the game. Okay, So suddenly you can't really rely on what you were used to. And suddenly you have to look for a different way and everybody's struggling. It's really uh, interesting to see, but our timing was just pretty perfect because like the whole idea of the solution is, hey, we, we don't really, we don't see the user level data. Okay, We don't know why. Joe or Benny or, I don't know, Iris did what they did. We're looking at, hey, this is the value you gained or lost. This is why, why this happened. Ah, because you started this campaign, stopped this campaign, increased this budget, decreased this budget, swapped to his creative, played around with this beat. You got featured. You had a blockbuster movie release or there was a tube strike in the UK. That's why you gained a lot of conversions. It had nothing to do with your paid marketing. Mm, makes sense. So the, the people who are now using your platform, it, it expands beyond your like the audience, the core audience of this podcast, like game developers. You have other people like we were just recently talking about with you about Tier, this well-known mobility company with their e-scooters that they rent. Like I like in the neighborhood where we live in Helsinki, it's like there's all over the place now these tier scooters like as an example how would tier be using incremental what kind of uniqueness does t- uh, incremental give to tier yeah so tier is like one of those fairly non very unique but of course there's there is quite uniqueness there so it's a real world product means it's a physical product that you use through an app you download the app you register you can rent a scooter now think about it when it rains not too many people are using tier. Or let's say if you wanna if you wanna use a tier, but there is like no devices around you, you can't use tier. Now, for them, just imagine that like the way they were trying to actually like measure marketing before this was indeed based on last touch, but last touch was completely disregarding these external factors, the seasonality, the fact that people in general use these scooters more on weekends than weekdays. When it comes to incrementality measurement, at least in our methodology, We can't ignore this. Like we have to know the seasonality trend there. We have to know if it's like heavily rained or if it's like great weather or if their like supply is high or low because otherwise we wouldn't be able to differentiate what was caused by this campaign you launched versus what was caused because the weather is just fantastic this weekend in Finland. And that's the reason why you had like so much more 
uh, demand um, because you had the supply, you had the conditions. So with like a company like Tier, the modeling part is also using like what is called external coefficients in order to basically allow them to measure anything they're doing, including marketing activities, while essentially taking into consideration all of this like real world events. So rather than them now concluding, wow, this like new thousand dollar campaign we started on this random channel is what caused us to gain by 20,000 installs. No, it's the weather. And if you think about it, by the way, seasonality, um, what we call seasonality, and it's not just like seasons, pretty much impacts every single vertical. Think of gaming versus like summer versus uh, winter, gaming versus gaming on uh, uh, Christmas uh, vacation. People get new devices and so on. All these like seasonality moments have a massive impact on performance, yet like the way people have been using like measurement uh, or attribution as a proxy for measurement was just completely ignoring this, like literally. Mm. Then think about the, the games company that would start using this. Like what kind of hooks would you put in place for a mobile game studio? And like, what, what would that process look like of uh, setting up tier for a mobile studio? Yeah. So first of all, like the most obvious hooks for gaming are typically like new releases. Okay. If you have a new build and you change something that could be very impactful for marketing or an economy change, which we re recently saw, uh, ASO changes, all of these could basically be like internal slash external things that influence your like performance, discounts, promotions, anything again, that could be impacting, um, your user base. Now, when it comes to like the other data points. Basically, whatever KPIs a customer wants to measure for us. So could be installs, could be first purchase, could be revenue, could be subscriptions, could be ad revenue, any anything that people could think about. When it comes to the actual integration, it's very, very, very simple. And what we always like, especially when it's the big company dealing with, uh, you know, when they send us, uh, oh, we have a legal process and compliance process. And then we have this uh, line that we use, uh, which says, we don't want to get your user level data. It, it simplifies things massively. Even even our in our even our contract literally states that we just do not wish to get this. Not even like you know just because you're fine with giving it to us, we just don't want to get it. We have nothing to do with it. Yeah. So then it's just you know purely aggregated data which customers could feed into us using Google Sheets. CSV, BigQuery, and some will actually use their MMPs just as a pipe because it's a very simple integration. Then like the usage of this tool, like let's say six months down the line as a, as a game studio would be using it. What would those benefits look like? The uplift that a free-to-play game marketer could see there. Yeah. So, you know, actually maybe starting with like day one. So yeah, when we onboard a company on day one, usually again, we show them, this is how you use the platform, but we always go to the easiest use case, which is what we call cannibalization. So one of the easiest way to explain the difference between attribution and incrementality is cannibalization. Cannibalization essentially is you have this ad spend. Attribution is telling you that every conversion you're getting from this ad spend is plus because attribution only counts in pluses. But what if you not spending this ad spend would mean that you are still getting those conversions, which essentially means that the attribution is now giving credit for someone that doesn't really deserve the credit, okay? 
Now, essentially, this is like the easiest go-to for us to show. So when we onboard customers, usually what we do is we go around their dashboards and we trigger a couple of measurements and we show them, hey, look at this ad spend, look at this channel, look at this campaign that you started. And it is not adding any value. Sometimes it's a controversial thing to say. You know, it's like uh, actually the other day I was in, I was talking with a very big gaming company that is our customer for a while, and they increased ad spend on Google iOS US by a hundred thousand dollars. And we we had a call with them and we showed them, guys, uh, this is redundant ad spend. Like all of this additional spend you did is not yielding any incremental value for you. Now, it this was by the way like one of the like very clear models and you see it and like we, we provide a lot of transparency into the like into the modeling part within the platform it was very very clear and you know when you raise such an insight in a large participant meeting it can be controversial so sometimes we need to be very careful and like how do we interpret this or what do we say but anyway i would say six down uh, six months down the line when like customers are already kind of like uh, regular to use the platform, understand the modeling, understand the results. It is always about efficiencies, it means testing, let's say new, new channels, let's see if they're actually creating value. What is the value? Let's basically create a strategy around the holidays by measuring last holidays and understand what should we be doing with the spend. Let's see how much can we spend on a certain channel that is working with us before we start getting to diminishing returns. Because basically like given our methodology or the platform methodology, the customers don't need to like only measure starting, stopping a channel. They can also measure what was the incremental value of the spend increase we did. And yeah, essentially it's all about efficiency. And I would say with most gaming companies, at least in the last year, even though, you know, financial markets are tight and companies are cutting spends and companies are laying off people, we have not seen this with gaming. Gaming continues strong and it's really just about how can we spend more while getting into our ROS goals, CPA goals, depending on the customer. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree there. Question about the future of incremental. How, how do you plan to evolve the product and what, what, what do you have coming next? Yeah. So first of all, it is complex. <laughs> if one yeah. comment, we, we, if there's one comment we do get from our customers is that Guys, it is complex, okay? It takes us a long time to get it. And you know, we are we're a data science driven company. Like let's do the math. Yeah, I think 90% of the employees in the company are data science or data engineer. And yeah, these people don't really think UI too much and simplification too much. I think that's what we need to do to do. We have been enjoying the fact that so far our growth has been organic. So we haven't really done sales and People just come to us because they heard about us or they heard about us from somewhere else or for someone else and they're looking for the solution. So people who come to us are essentially willing to bear this like complexity tax. But moving forward, again, when we are looking at the scaling um, company, um, it's about simplification and it's about basically enabling the marketer rather than them needing to break their heads on like, what should I be measuring? And like, how should I interpreting the results? We are working towards what is called autonomous. Uh, autonomous basically does the measurements for you and shows you, hey, this is your result. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. like a simplification. And yeah, I would say like simplifying the product, simplifying the UI, that's like a driving force. 
And then when it comes to the onboarding, yeah, basically enabling all the customers who have a relatively simplified integration to just onboard themselves rather than waiting line today, there is a queue. Yeah. Yeah. That all makes sense. Let's come back to incremental a bit later in the episode. I wanted to ask you about entrepreneurship and your thoughts. Like, can you tell me how, how you went about it when you thought about starting the company? What were your next steps to, to prepare to do incremental? So incremental is the first company I started, but it wasn't the first company I wanted to start. There was always ideas. There was always even like pitch decks or idea decks and so on. But I never, I never made the plunge. Like the plunge is like, hey, I'm quitting. I'm going to start my own thing. I've never done that. I think that the biggest difference and what I value the most, my entrepreneurial path, let's call it, is having a co-founder. There is no way in hell I would want to do this myself or, or I think could do it myself. If there wasn't there someone... And by the way, me and my co-founder, we fight like crazy. Everybody knows us, knows we fight like crazy. But obviously, there is the, the moments where we do value one another. And we do say, like, dude, this is, like, amazing. You could do amazing things and so on. If it wasn't for this, like, push, I don't think I would have ever been ready. There would always, like, fears and fears and fears. Yeah, and I honestly don't know, like, the type of people that do this, like, solo. It's a lot of respect, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of ignorance in a way, <laughs> like how much, how hard it is, but it may be like, I've seen a few founders who, who, who've done it alone and then they manage to do it alone and then they do it again alone. I think there's, there's a type, very rare type, most likely. Yeah. I, I think it's fun to do it though, with like someone else. Um, yes. And, and again, we, we fight like crazy. It's like, I'm not understating how much we fight, but end of the day, I think we both know that there is no chance we could have done this without one another. Yeah, it's still true. So I started my first company alone, and then for Next Games, it was it was a bunch of people co-founding because I wanted it that way. It just didn't make but any the, sense. But on the preparation point, so again, of course, like there was the idea or at least the problem I wanted to solve. And I think it was something very dear to heart. And I did start speaking about it and, and going and presenting it, the idea, the solution, what I'm thinking and so on to people in like the right places. Like I spoke with Richard Hawking. He was the chief marketing officer at King. He was on my contact list and I pinged him. I went to see him and yeah, he got it, you know? And I think this like external validation was very good for me. I did the same with Anton from Huge Games, who the only reason why we were connected with him is that Moti, my co-founder, like his kids were in the same school in Berlin as Anton's kids when Anton lived in Berlin. So that was the relationship, but we managed to grab 20 minutes of his time showing him kind of like, this is the idea. And you know, he validated it, even though there was nothing, you know, there was mm-hmm. like literally like a thought process. And I think that that definitely helped us kind of like prepare that there is a market here. We didn't know how we're going to do it. The, we didn't write a, a line of code. We didn't have a business case. Yeah. And we just, just took it like one day at a time. We also like ran it through people that I think I knew that once we get this up, we wanted them like with us 
at whatever capacity, you know, advisors, investors, whatever. And there we got super lucky with, like I got lucky with Eric, which I knew from the past. And I knew he shared some of my opinions when it comes to like attribution. And again, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not like bad mouthing the MMPs. Like I, I know all, pretty much all of their CEOs pretty well, most of their executive team pretty well. I do respect them, but it's just, I just didn't think that it was the answer. It wasn't just giving everything. There was still like a massive gap and a massive problem. And yeah, I wanted to do something about it. Makes sense. Yeah, I remember like this this approach that you you went to talk to people and get validation and get feedback. Like I remember like with my first company, I think in the audience, there might be people who are also feeling this, like you might suffer from imposter syndrome when you do your first company, like to go and ask for feedback for your ideas when you're young. Like I was thinking like, who am I to go and ask these people for for like if this is a good idea or not before I, I can show something truly like good. I think that's that can hold people off a lot of discovering if what you're thinking about doing is going to be easy or not. I think one of the advisors early on told me, hey, you're just asking for feedbacks, okay? Like you're Mm -hmm. not pitching, you're not asking for money, you're just asking for feedbacks. And that really helped me. And then I, I really just opened my like network and reached out to anyone who could possibly give me relevant feedback to get feedbacks. And there was this one very, very smart entrepreneur I spoke with. He's this, I don't know if he's currently or still former uh, CEO of Outbrain. And he, he, like he gave us feedbacks on the deck and so on and so on. And then he said something great. He said, be careful with feedbacks because and if like when you're speaking with people who are successful, their feedbacks is in a way like them telling you, here are the lottery numbers I used. Try those. Yes. And he basically said, look, take feedbacks, make your own decisions. That was like very good, very reinforcing. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I think that was the when I started finally opening up with my first company, it was a bit like I go and talk with people who are entrepreneurs, but never been in the games industry before, never built maybe even B2C products. And the feedback, like it was kind of hard to to filter what I should pick there. So it took some time to start learning that like exact thing that what what can you actually utilize from what people say? It's an art form for sure. And I think it with gaming, by the way, like it's it's even harder because you know, there is like, there's winning recipes, but then Roblox comes or Minecraft comes or Among Us comes. And is that like, I don't know, that, that did those games fall into any like pattern of this is how you build a successful game? Yeah. And yeah, take even King.com that, you know, I would say like the blockbuster when it comes to a match three, were they the first? Were they the second? I think at the end, it's like you do what you do, what you believe in. And as long as you keep doing it, likely work. Exactly. You've been working with investors. What have you learned about the venture-backed path so far? It is hard. <laughs> so <laughs> so when, when we really, really like started the company, Moti and I were like, okay, we are experienced people. We're like 20 years career. Both of us were C-levels. Let's just go directly to VCs on a pitch deck. And yeah, we got a lot of no's, <laughs> a lot of no's. Or by the way, we actually got a yes that turned into a no that was not just heartbreaking. It was, it, it almost set us to the point where, you know, fuck this, let's not do this. Pardon my French, by the way. Yeah, it's kind of like a, like you really, really 
don't know early on in the conversation with uh, VCs, who's going to understand what you're doing, who's going to value what you're doing. And by the way, it's a matter of timing. It's, um, you know, recently, so we raised a round from uh, Play Ventures and it's funny, but like I told them that Play Ventures was the first VC pitch we did like two and a half years ago, which I think they kind of like got the direction, but they said like, you need to do it first uh, and then talk to us. And yeah, I think over time, what I did right was I kept in touch with them and suddenly the timing was was good. Suddenly the timing, the, the proof, the growth, the, I guess also on their end. So you know, it's like funny. I used to I used to hire a lot of salespeople, and sometimes always tell salespeople, like sales is is an easy is it's an easy job because it's a numbers game. Like even if you're a terrible salesperson, making up phone conversations, sending out emails, you're gonna close like customers. And honestly, the fundraising process is pretty much similar. Even if you're not getting it, even if you're getting a lot of no's and a lot of questions, and someone says yes and then they say no, it's like fine. You just need to continue. It's not personal. Yeah. So that was like, you need to really, really develop a little bit of a thick skin there. And again, there, if I was doing it alone, I might have like given up along the way. Yeah. You can sort of push together a bit further. Yeah. Totally hear you what you're saying. Are you ever worried about like the whole thing now crumbling down and you losing the company? Because I remember having those thoughts, like always as a founder, that even though you're making money, you're tenor, you're you're growing, but then the fear is there that it all can go away. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So being very honest, yes, of course. It's like, a, I would say it's less of a daily paranoia these days, but yeah, for sure. I don't know, something happens and someone says this and you suddenly read about this potential competitor and this maybe competitor. And these people tell you that, oh no, we'll do it ourselves or we think we can do it better. Or it's like, yeah, it's like it shakes your confidence. A lot. And even again, even with like active customers, happy customers, case studies and so on, still there's sometimes this like evil voice in your head telling you this might all crumble tomorrow. And yeah, I think I, I did recently have like a very, very pleasing moment where there was this customer where I, I actually barely engaged with them uh, from the moment they onboarded. Someone else in the team was. And uh, yeah, they reached out for a call and this person who was mostly handling this customer was off. So I took the call and it was like six people on their side. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to tell me everything is bad. Everything is wrong, problems, whatever. And no, they were just like asking super relevant usability questions and how to improve the modeling with like this and that. And I think that's the moment where it hit me that this is bigger than me. This can scale, like there is value. I'm not just like making it up in my head. Yeah, but I am looking forward to more of these moments because, uh, you know, obviously like as an entrepreneur working, I don't know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, you often don't see it. You often are just seeing everything that is potentially wrong and what we're not doing correctly and what we could be doing correctly. So yeah, it's, yeah. there's these like rare moments where you have like a little bit piece of mine in order to zoom out and look at the way you've done and see that maybe I'm being quite hard on myself. Do you spend time thinking about the purpose of being an entrepreneur for yourself? Like kind of like your why in quotes? You know, I don't think I've ever really asked myself that. I think for me, it was just the problem. Like the problem bothered me. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to give you a scoop. 
So after I sold Uplift in 2019, I actually had very interesting like job opportunities from some companies that like theoretically would have been a good fit. And theoretically, maybe I could have like tackled this problem while being at those companies. But I think when I went to see those companies, I saw that it, it wasn't that. It's like uh, they didn't get it. They didn't get the problem the way I got the problem. Or even if they got the problem, the solution for them was just wasn't the right solution. So I think it became clear for me that I can't really like drive this like using a team or a department. I need everything around me to be aligned towards this vision, this goal, this problem. And yeah, so it became very natural that the only solution for me will be go and do it as scary as it is. Yeah, amazing. It's really good. Hey, before we go to the final questions, do you have any advice for first-time founders who are just starting their company? I, I think the audience is full of those kind of people. So what are your thoughts? First of all, do it. Like I would say whatever whatever is holding you back typically is just fear. So it's irrational. Fear is irrational. And if you make a list of the things that scare you, like why you're not doing it and you show it to someone else, if you'll show it to more people, more people will tell you and show you that this is irrational, this is irrational, this is irrational, this is irrational. If you have an idea or like a burning to do it, just go and do it. Other advice for sure for me is do not do it alone. If it's Again, I think it's just, uh, it's not worth it. Not worth it doing it alone. And plus it's just way more fun to also do it with someone else. So find your co-founder, co-founders. And yeah, and I think this tip I got from the CEO of Outbrain was very, very smart. Anyone successful giving you advice, it's it's literally them telling you, here's my lottery numbers, try those. You can try those. Most likely they're not going to work. Who knows? Yeah, it's like, I think if you even have this idea that you want to do something, that is already the entrepreneurial spirit, which just means you're going to figure it out. You're going to figure out every obstacle, problem. I don't know how to do accounting, how to do audited reports, how to like, that's like solvable. Yeah. So that's my advice. Makes sense. Hey, for the final questions, Maur, what's your favorite book and why? It's a book I actually read like late in, in my career and also too late into the role is hard thing about hard things what i call the bible for uh, um, entrepreneurial people yeah i think it basically says everything that needs to be said about entrepreneurial like what what does it mean how do you do it how do you carry the strength um wartime ceo yeah i honestly like can very much also relate. I'm saying that I read it late because I read it like one year into being the CEO of Uplift. In retrospect, someone should have given me this book and told me, read this on the day I got the job. I learned a lot in retrospect from that book and learned a lot like on my flesh, as it said. Question for you, since you've embraced that book, I've also read it a few times when it came out and then just recently. How do you make the whole team embrace the concepts that Ben Horowitz is talking about in the book? I don't know if I want to necessarily like push like the team towards you do this like this or you do that like that. I think individualism, accepting individualism, I think it's something that was also rooted in incremental's DNA because we were a company, we're like a Corona company, you know, like a Corona baby. Company was born basically in like lockdown mode. Everything was remote. I haven't seen my co-founder in the first 18 months of the company other than Zoom. And yeah, I think it's like fine for 
people to have their own drivers. And, you know, I don't expect every single person in the company or actually anyone in the company to have necessarily my personal goal, my personal why. People do what they do because of what drives them. And that's, I think that's beautiful. Like what unites us is, again, the, the teamwork and like alignment and agreement, but also accepting diversity and accepting that we are different people with different stages, different wishes. You know, it's like in today's world, like, I don't necessarily expect everyone to stick around for 10 years. That'll be amazing if they do. We were just talking about it earlier, that there are companies that have zero um, employee churn, which is amazing. I, I would love to have that, but I don't necessarily try to artificially create something that isn't there. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really good. You're kind of alignment but still the diversity and the individuality and and then you get really like creative solutions for for things yeah amazing do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today yeah yeah so first job like in my like career my edtech career um i was a lead hunter okay my job was to find potential advertisers this is pretty much not pre-Google, but Google wasn't the most popular search engine. So it's that early. And I just needed to really like find companies, find the POCs, reach out to them and so on. And yeah, I was doing it from a computer, of course. Um, but then one of the sales directors in the company is like a bit you know, more mature, more old fashioned. He told me, no, no, I want you to call these people from around the world, get the really relevant POC, speak with them, give me like warm leads. And this was very scary for me. And then he gave me this like advice. He said, look, if the call doesn't work, just hang up the phone. First, I never did. But this approach of if it doesn't work, you can always hang up the phone. <laughs> this like exit door or escape strategy. It's, it's actually, at least for me, it was a very, is still a very useful cheat, I would say. So we, we mentioned imposter syndrome. I'm completely there with you. The knowledge that I could literally escape the room is soothing. And again, never done it, but the knowledge that I could, if I wanted to, nothing bad will happen. It's actually quite helpful for me. I'm not sure if my investors would love to hear this, but like, uh, it, it's the truth. Uh, you know, I'm yeah. human. Yeah. But there, there's so many scary things in life that where you can't just hang up. You, you just don't realize that like no harm happens if, if you give it a try. Hey, Mar, uh, as the final question, what's the best way for the podcast audience to get in contact with you? and Maybe ask about incremental. Yeah, so for me, LinkedIn is for sure the, the easiest and best way. Mar Sadra the only Maor Sadra that I know. The company, either again through my LinkedIn or just incremental.com, like at least as of now, I'm still extremely accessible and very, very fast responder. Yeah, that's usually the easiest way I'm, I try to be as approachable, even though again, you know, sometimes because I'm like, I don't know, been in this industry and so on, sometimes my people might feel threatened, but I do not bite. Amazing. Yeah, Maor, this was so much fun. I think there's, there's more, more to discuss with you and, and the entrepreneurial journey at some point in the future. So let's get back to this at some point. But thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Cool. Thank you. And see you at Slash. And by the way, if many of your audience uh, are coming to Slash, then A, we're going to be there. And B, we're throwing a party with uh, Eric Stufert uh, on the 17th. 
I think, yeah. And you can find the details on the slash like uh, website side activity or side events, however it's called, or on the Eric Sufert's community MDM. So feel free, come have a drink, have some food, say hi. And that's that. Yeah. See you there, man. Take care. See you there. Bye-bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining the show. If you have time, please go and sign up to our newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.